0: It's good to be back together again, and it's good that those conversations that have begun we can continue. As we'll have a uh, share a lunch after our church service together, Um, we can do bring and share. um, So if you if you brought stuff and you share it, it's fine. Um, So we will return to the normal routine of bring and share lunches next month, um, where we bring things with the intent of Lay it out and people help themselves to what they would like. And it's been a long time, I reckon. Maybe March last year would have been the last time we had one of those. So that'll be nice again. Okay, we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark after a little detour last week. We're up to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 9, verse 1. I will say it now before you go away really disappointed. I actually don't speak about the quantity of 9 verse 1 this morning, but I will next week. So if you get to the end of the sermon and say, oh, he missed out that but he didn't say nothing, um, I will get there next week, I promise. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, it is a weighty thing to, to handle your word, to hear your word, because, Lord, it is you speaking to us. Lord, we pray that we might hear it as the very word of God and respond to it with awe and reverence and fear. That your words are the ones, the one who is almighty, the one who is our God, the one who speaks of who you are, who speaks to the very core of who we are and our desperate need for you. Lord, we pray that the very purposes that you intended for this passage to be preserved for us. Uh, May those very purposes uh, take place in our lives. May we be transformed in the way you intended us to be. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, right here we have a lovely four-bedroom, three-bathroom, seven cars, boys. Ian would love one with seven cars shared. 1.61 hectares. On the waters of Cairns, not Cairns of of Noosa. Seven million dollars is on the market now. If you'd like it, who would like exactly what you see pictured here? Because in the very first, Eastgate first, whoever wants to come down here first will get exactly what you see. Who, who's going to come on down? Come on, someone's got to humour me. Come on. Go on, Adam. You you want to humour it. Come on down. (laughs) Adam has received exactly what you see there. For those who are listening to a recording, Adam just received a printed copy of the photo of that very expensive house that we had on the screen. For a split second there, Maybe some of you thought, all of my dreams have come true. If I just come on down, this is mine. Or for a split second, or maybe even a lengthy second, you might have thought, I'm visiting this place and this guy is an absolute heretic. I'm getting out of here <laughs> as soon as possible. Because to the eye and the fleshly mind, what was on offer there was something that would seem pretty satisfying. But in the end, what it delivered, and I'm sure Adam probably will not really putting that picture up on the wall in his home, you'd probably think, I'd actually rather minimum chips from the fish and chip shop than a printed picture of a house. So why use such a silly example in terms of introducing the passage that we're looking at this morning? Because in this life, there is a bounty of things that appeal to us that seem so satisfying that a marketer to it is something that we must have that in the end are about as satisfying as that beautiful printed picture that Adam received, or the minimum chips, whichever one you prefer. And every single one of them is every bit as deceptive as that photo. The only difference is they are far more subtle the things that the world put forward as being desirable, as being something that you need, when you get them, they might actually feel like, yes, I've arrived. This is really living. But let me tell you, if they truly are your life, you are dramatically missing out. Now, I haven't regretted at all splitting what was supposed to be from Mark 8.22 to 9, which was going to be one sermon into three. In fact, I think it's possibly been three of the most important sermons in the Gospel of Mark so far. Last week we looked at what we saw the most important question, that question that each of us need to ask and answer. Who is Jesus? Who do you say he is? And today it is, what is the most important and satisfying pursuit in life. And as we work our way through the passage, we're going to look at getting Jesus right in verses 31 to 33, getting discipleship right in verse 34, and your best life in the rest of the chapter 8, and wrapping up with having it all or losing it all. So firstly, getting Jesus right Last week we looked at that important question. That question of, who do you say that Jesus is? Up until that point in the Gospel of Mark, people had put forward a number of options. When Herod asked the question about who he was, he thought, maybe it's Elijah. Maybe it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. When Jesus asked the disciples, who do people, what's the general consensus? What are people saying about who I am? They said, oh, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. But everyone else, all they're saying is maybe just one of one of many of a series of prophets. Until Jesus addresses the disciples themselves and say, who do you guys, who do you say that I am? And Peter, unsurprisingly, the first to respond, says, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's almost like Jesus has responded to Peter's answer and says, Peter, you've nailed it. That's... Exactly who I am. God, you are blessed. God has revealed that to you. And you, Peter, which Greek is Petros, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now, I know the human condition. We're inclined to get really, really proud when someone says that we got something right or says something about us. And okay, just imagine Peter, in his mind at this point, so saying, too right, I'm on the money, I got it right, didn't I? And yeah, I'm blessed by God, God shows me stuff. And yeah, you're right Jesus, God's going to use me mightily. Peter's probably so excited that not only has he got it right, he's been commended for, by Jesus for his answer, but he's thinking, For centuries, the Jews have been long awaiting the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was going to set them free from their enemies. And he's like, and this is going to happen in my lifetime, and here he is right before my very eyes. Now remember, Peter's understanding, like all of the other Jews at this point in time, was to think that the Messiah was going to be some political leader. One who, by defeating their enemies, would set them free from the Roman occupation, from the surrounding nations. And he's thinking, this man before me, he's just said, yep, that's me. And this is going to happen right before my eyes. But right after Peter has given a very articulate and wording-wise correct description of Jesus... Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days to rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I find it interesting that Mark feels need to add that little comment. He said this plainly. There is no speculation for even a moment. Did, did Jesus just say what I, what I think he said? They understood clearly and plainly what Jesus just said about himself. But for Peter, who was just had it affirmed that, yes, this guy, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ, with a whole different picture of what that was going to look like, Here's this Messiah speak and say that he must suffer many things, die and be raised on the third day. And he's like, what you doing about, Willis? Throw it in there for fun. Because Jesus has said some things that are so far off track Peter's perception of what the Messiah would be. that He's like, I can't listen to this. Like Jesus has said, he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by all of the most significant Jewish leaders, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders. He's going to be killed. That's probably the time when Peter just completely tuned out. Killed? This guy that's going to set us free from all the surrounding nations, he's going to be killed? Probably didn't even hear the fourth one to say that after three days, which they used inclusive time, so it's the same as on the third day. He would rise again if he and the disciples even heard those words. Now this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus has said plainly the central heart of his mission. That is to come, to lay down his life, to die on the cross, to take the punishment for sinful mankind on their behalf and to be raised again in victory. And Peter hears it And he doesn't want a bar of it. Jesus wasn't saying, you know, things aren't panning out too well, I'm getting a fair bit of opposition, this is where I think it's headed. Jesus says, the Son of Man must do these things. These are non-negotiables. These things are essential to my mission. Now, Peter, who's Still a bit over the moon that that he's told that he's got it right, that he's been blessed by God to understand who Jesus is. He's like, Jesus, can we have a little bit of a word over here? And again, Matthew provides us a little bit of insight into that exchange. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So to the one who he's just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, when he starts to unpack what it means to be the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter's like, no way. No way. This will not ever, ever happen. God forbid that this evil thing that you've just spoken should ever take place. Peter couldn't be too much stronger in the way in which he opposed Jesus' articulation of the central heart of his mission. Because Peter was thinking all of his dreams were about to happen before his eyes. He's like, this is the guy who's going to get rid of the Romans, the surrounding nations. So he rebukes Jesus. Because what Jesus just said does not fit the Jesus that Peter wanted. The Christ or the Messiah that Peter wanted. He doesn't question Jesus. He doesn't say, Jesus, that doesn't really fit with my understanding. Can you you help me understand why these things must happen? He doesn't say why must this happen. He says, may this never, ever take place, what you've just said. It sounds so abhorrent to Peter, what Jesus had just spoken. And rightly, Jesus responds strongly to Peter's objection. Turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance for me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's not a subtle rebuke, is it? Get behind me, Satan. Despite the fact that sometimes we use it in a very light hearted sense, sometimes like someone has you around to their house and say, Would you like coffee I've only got an instant? And you say, Get behind me, Satan, that's not quite the 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 way it's intended to be used. But Jesus says three things about Peter after saying, get behind me, Satan. He says, you are a hindrance to me. Now, no doubt, Peter thought he was helping by saying, no way, you're supposed to be the guy who defeats everyone, you don't die. He says, you are a hindrance. Your mind is not on the things of God. Your mind is on the things of man. As a mere man, Peter was seeking to advise the one that he has just declared to be the Christ, the son of the living God, to tell him what things he must and must not do. Probably no surprise that in the, just that over in the next chapter, in verse 7 of chapter 9, in the Mount of Transfiguration, as God speaks in a voice, Peter, James and John are there he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. If only Peter had done that the previous chapter. Do not hear the words of God or something that Jesus says that you don't like and say, may that never be true. When Peter refuses to accept Jesus as he is and his mission as he declares it to be, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Every single attempt to redefine who Jesus is and redefine his mission is the work of Satan. Whether it be downplaying the sinfulness of sin, to say, Jesus didn't really need to die on a cross. I'm a pretty good person. I don't deserve death like he endured there. Or whether it be taking parts of the Bible that declare something to be sin. Don't you dare say, may that never be considered sin in my day. Or anything that you encounter in the Bible, which is God's word to us, that you don't like and say, no, God, that's not the way it needs to be. He is the Lord. He is the master. You are not to oppose anything that he has said is not just a matter of you having a difference of an opinion on theological matters, it is to oppose God himself. We have to get Jesus right. We have to get Jesus right by believing that he is who he said he is. We need to get his mission right, understanding that he is and he's about what he said he's about. And we need to respond to him on the terms that he sets forth, not the ones that we would prefer to be the case. And if the disciples misunderstood his identity, then it's highly likely that they also misunderstood discipleship. Immediately after setting the record straight about Jesus' identity and his mission of a death and a resurrection... Jesus states plainly what it looks like to be a follower of him. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See, he's gathered in the crowd. This isn't just something for the twelve disciples. It's not even just something for those who were gathered there on that occasion. He says, If anybody... Would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, remember, in context, Peter has just rebuked Jesus for stating his mission clearly because it didn't suit him. Peter had to deny himself, deny his own preferred version of what Jesus would do for him and his hopes take up his cross and follow Jesus Jesus' mission is his mission it's about him Jesus' mission is not about what he can do for you for you to get what you want to get ahead in this life Following him means making him your first priority. That your first priority is, what does he want? What would bring him glory? Discipleship is not about having a friend in high places to hopefully manipulate to get what you want. True disciples happily give up their own agenda. Happily give up their own plans. For the sake of... Embracing his better plan, his better agenda. A disciple says, Not my will be done, but yours. Jesus couldn't be clearer. Following Jesus is not about you getting ahead in life. When charlatans preach the message, it says, If you come to Jesus, you will be healthy. Wealthy and successful. Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. Jesus says anyone who would come after him must deny himself, not seek to get for himself. To deny himself and take up our Christ. Now I need to make a little note there. To deny yourself doesn't mean that you must have nothing in this life. That you must live in a cardboard box on the side of the road, that you must burn your TV, that you must not have anything nice in this life, must have one pair of clothes and you just have to wear a paper bag on laundry day. You may you may have convictions about what it means to deny yourself and you should go with your conscience but it doesn't mean that you must not have anything in this life. But as he says, take up your cross and follow me, the people who heard that knew exactly the horrific thing he was saying. Because it was common in that world. You would walk around the streets and there would be, along the sides of the street, dead bodies hanging on crosses. You knew what it was about. It was about giving up of one's life. But unlike those hanging on the crosses that they saw punished as criminals, it's not about having your life taken from you, it's about you willingly giving up your life. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 10 nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down and I have authority to take it back up again. We are called to take up our cross. To lay down our goals, our desires, our intentions to follow him that nothing might stand in the way. But as you hear all this talk, it's nigh yourself, taking up your cross, you think, why would anyone want to follow Jesus? That that doesn't sound really much fun at all. That sounds like you're missing out on anything good. Well, Jesus actually follows up by giving us four reasons why the best life comes from denying yourself and taking up your cross. You'll notice in verses 35 to 38, every single verse, depending on your translation, starts with the word for, as in piling up a group of arguments as to why it is important that we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. The first of those, for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Now, if you've got different translations, just so you know that the word translated life there can also mean soul, and even the ESV interchanges using the word between soul and life, so don't get confused if your wording in front of you is somewhat different. But just as Jesus had plainly laid out what anyone who would follow him must do, he now lays out plainly what it means to come after him, to follow him. Anyone who would try to save his life, to save his soul, who would seek their own, will lose it, guaranteed. Or in other words, to refuse to deny yourself, in other words, to live entirely for yourself, he says, you will lose your life. You will lose lose your soul however the reverse is also guaranteed to stop living for this life to stop living for your worldly and earthly pursuits to turn to Jesus to live for Jesus will save their soul so the first four reason if we live for this life guaranteed loss if we live for Christ guaranteed saved The second, four, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It's almost a bit of a financial question. What profit is it to have absolutely everything this world could ever offer while forfeiting your own soul? Well, let me tell you, the person who has absolutely every material blessing in this life but who has not got Christ has less than the person who has no material goods at all but has Jesus. Why would you trade the most important and eternal for that which is temporal? Temporal both in value and in importance. Now we know we live in a world that wants to instant gratification We've got this mantra, if it feels good, do it. If it makes you happy, take it, get it at all, at all cost. What's the result? The result is our attention is shifted from the eternal to the temporary, of the things that will save our soul to the things that will forfeit our soul. To answer that question, what does it profit to gain all the world has to offer, yet forfeit your soul, the answer is you lose big time. And that's not even just a, just a biblical conclusion. You look at any person who has got to the peak of riches and say, Are you happy with what you've got? Every single person I've heard interviewed and asked that question say they're not happy. They're lonely and they're depressed. I've never heard a rich person say, This is good. And none of this denying yourself, taking up your cross, means you missing out on the best. Instead, it is a helpful warning from Jesus not to sell yourself short to the folly of the world's marketing. The third four, for what can a man give in return for his soul? It's kind of like a backup for the one point that has just been made. What can you give to gain your soul? Can the richest person, by their material blessings, do something to gain back their soul? The answer is Nothing you can give in return for your soul. If you forfeit your soul by rejecting the free gift of salvation, nothing you do, buy or have can return to you, your soul, your life. The only price that is acceptable is the price that Jesus Christ has paid his body, shed on the cross on our behalf, raised again in victory on the third day, paid in full. Man, what can we give? Nothing. Jesus has paid it. What do we do? We turn from our sin. We turn and trust in Jesus. And lastly, if it wasn't clear enough, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He's using that same comprehensive language for whoever who is ashamed of me and my message. Whoever says, "No, this whole Jesus thing—I don't need it. I'm not a sinner. I don't need to be forgiven." Who is ashamed of the message and the means by which he is provided? He says, "I will be ashamed when I come." with The glory of the Father with the, the holy angels. He's saying. I am coming again. I will return one day to judge the living and the dead. And whoever is ashamed of me, reject the means of salvation, will be rejected by the judge. If they forfeited their soul to eternal punishment, to lose their life. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus has done everything for even the most wicked person who's ever walked this earth. They confess their sins, turn from their sin, turn and trust in Jesus. They pass from death to life. Their sins will be not accounted to them because they've been placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They will save their soul, they will save their life, they will be honored when He comes in glory and raise up to be with him. They will have all of the blessings of Christ for all eternity. Jesus is not calling people to accept a lesser life where you've got to give up all of the good stuff. He's exposing the foolishness of what the world markets to us on a daily basis as being more satisfying and more necessary. Because... He wants the best for his creation. He's provided the way and it's a matter of having it all or losing it all. You don't need to try. The world will do everything it can to take your attention off things of eternity, of things that actually matter and try and say, you need this. This is where happiness, joy and satisfaction will come. It will tell you, get as much as you can, as quick as you can, and as easy as you can. It's presented as the pinnacle of human life experience and you will be bombarded from every single angle. But it's not the pinnacle of human life experience. In fact, the very maker and sustainer of human life says, those things, if that is your life, you are forfeiting your very soul. You are forfeiting your life. It's not just the rich who see that futility. Every rich person I've ever heard interview say they want more, they're lonely, they're depressed. In other words, they say, I've seen the foolishness of what the world tells me is going to be satisfying, but sadly haven't found the very thing for which they were made. We're told in Colossians that all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus in whom are all things. You and I were created by Jesus for Jesus. To enjoy him, to enjoy his blessings. To be everything that we were made to be. But mankind forfeited that in sin saying I want to do what I want to do. I want to be the king who calls the shots. I want to have what I want to have. I think I know better. God could have said the old expression, you've made your bed, now sleep in it. But by nature, our God is gracious and merciful. Jesus came into this world to the very people who had acted in hostility towards him to lay down his life to bear their punishment to bring sinners to God, to reconcile them to God. Yes, he calls us to deny ourselves. Yes, he calls us to take up our cross. But effectively, he's calling us to deny trash in order to take up his treasures. Or as Paul puts it in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that are in order that I may gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, we too need to be on our guard. It's not just before we come to Christ that we can be easily have our eyes taken away from the things of eternal importance. We can find ourselves easily attracted to having our focus on things, of getting things in this life, as though that's what our life is all about. But all the glitter of this world, to use quite an unattractive expression, is nothing but a polished turd. You have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the author and the perfecter of your faith. Don't take the seemingly easy path. Follow the rich, rewarding path that Jesus has laid out before you. Remember Jesus who came before us, he was offered the easy way. Satan says, now if you want an easy way, just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. When he's on the cross, he's got people jeering at him saying, now if you're really the son of God, save save yourself and save us. And he could have. We need to never wander from the path of following Jesus. We will have things that want to pull us all off the path all the time. An easier sort of little shortcut. But whenever we're facing decisions in life, a question I think we should always ask, is this decision going to cause me to need to take even one step off that path of following Christ and if it does no thank you I do not want it I will not be sold a lesser glory than the riches of following Christ my Lord the giver of all good gifts rather I would rather proclaim the truth of 1st Timothy 6 17 which is both an encouragement for us and a warning where he says "As for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know at times when we read passages like this and we hear your words of denying self and taking up our cross, we can be tempted to think that we need to not enjoy our life. As though somehow you're calling us to a life of, of misery, of just taking one for the team. By nature of our union with you, at times we will face opposition and hardship. But Lord, we thank you too that you, you tell us you are the God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, forgive us for times when we have pursued things and we've made it central to our life the pursuit of something that we thought would bring us joy and satisfaction, but it was something other than you. Something that we'd either intentionally or even just unintentionally drifted to it almost becoming an an idol in our life. Lord, thank you that that you speak honest words to our heart, telling us if any would come after you, we, we must deny ourselves. Our life is not our own, we were bought at a price. May it be a joy, joy to walk in the path that you've laid out before us. That we would not think about what we're leaving behind in the periphery, but our eyes fixed on the one whom we are following who is our prize. We give you thanks for the glorious riches we have in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us now stand and sing uh, in response um, to these words.